Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. Father, we thank you for um, this season right now that we're celebrating. Uh, Lord, uh, as we remember the Advent, the first Advent of our Lord Jesus, I always say, Lord, help us to remember that uh, the work of Jesus comes in two parts. We know that he came first to redeem mankind, to, per- to live the perfect life that we could never live, to die a death, horrible, cruel, unjust death in our place, to redeem us. And then, Father, we know that as we're looking at the world, it's still something isn't right. We see violence. We see a lack of peace. We see division. We see hatred and anger everywhere we look. But we know that Jesus has promised to set all things right. We know that our Lord Jesus is one who redeems. He does not give up on what he's made. All that Satan does to pollute, he does not give up on it, but redeems in a beautiful way that only Almighty God could do. So, Father, help us to remember that the work to come, a redemption of his creation, total redemption, is on the horizon. So, Father, we, we look back enjoy that we have been provided a way of salvation and we look forward that there is a renewal of creation to come and a renewal of your people a a time when we will be the very presence of impossibility of sin will be removed and we will be in our glorified state and in the glorious presence of our lord so father help us to remember that always and especially as we celebrate this season of advent we love you lord in jesus name amen Jesus, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation. Joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. I will praise my great Redeemer. Lord of lords and King of kings, let the worship rise within me. You are Lord, my heart will sing. Lost now found, sick now healed, say to show your mind. 
matchless grace, waiting with hope and great assurance, till I see your glorious face. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles this morning. Thank you, Brother Joseph. Yes, sir. Psalm chapter 8. Psalm 8. Psalm 8. I'm going to read this morning from the Legacy Standard Bible, the LSB. I'll show you why. It's really apparent right at the very first verse. Psalm 8. For the choir director, according to the Gitteth, a Psalm of David. O Yahweh, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. The LSB actually translates the covenant name of God uh, as Yahweh. So you see his personal name. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Who displays your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have established, what is man that you remember him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the animals of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Yahweh, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter 4. Now our New Testament reading. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming, and now it is is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world hears them. We are from God. The one who knows God hears us. The one who is not from God does not hear us. From this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another. 
For love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has in us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this, love has been perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for Christ who came and was born of a virgin, lived the perfect life. Lord, we thank you. And Lord, we just look forward to the, to the coming that we expect. And Father, pray that you do your work of preparing us. Lord, this season, help us to live with joy. In the middle of such turmoil in this world, help us to find the peace and the joy that your spirit supplies to those who completely rely on you and are filled with you, with your spirit. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So good to be with you all today. Thank you for coming and being a part of this gathering. I hope you feel at home here. We're, we're just ordinary folks. Uh, Jesus has done an extraordinary thing on our behalf, and we want to try to make all of this about him and about what he is doing, what he can do in your life. I don't care who you are, where you've been, what you've done, what your past is, what your present is. He is able to bring radical change, peace that you thought was impossible, Forgiveness that you thought would never come. He can do it. you got to trust Him. So we uh, are on our way through the letter of 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're gathering steam. We're making our way toward the middle of chapter 1. So I'll ask you to find 1 Corinthians 1 in your Bible. 1 Corinthians 1. It never ceases to amaze me 
how when I make a commitment to preach verse by verse through a book of the Bible, God seems to arrange the timing of things. For example, the week of Thanksgiving, what were the verses that we came to in our study, but Paul's Thanksgiving for the Corinthian church? And then sadly, what happens so many times, it seems like, when families get together over the holidays? Well, ugliness can happen, arguments, disputes, and everybody knows it. Here are the headlines from this past week. I saw these, I wrote them down. The New York Times, how to deal with holiday family drama. CBS News, expert advice on handling family challenges around the holidays. The New York Post, how to handle combative relatives during the holidays. And PBS NewsHour, tips for coping with potential strife at your holiday table. So guess what today's verses next up in 1 Corinthians deal with? Ugliness, arguments, and disputes. Never ceases to amaze me how when you make a commitment. I'm going to teach, preach through this book, this letter, this section. It just is amazing how God arranges things. Are you at 1 Corinthians 1, everyone? Paul has greeted the church, if you're looking at your text, In verses 1 to 3, he has expressed gratitude for the church in verses 4 to 9. And he's done this while laser focusing the Corinthians on God throughout all these verses. Did you notice verse 1? It's God who called Paul to be an apostle. Verse 2, it's God who established the church in Corinth. Verse 3, it's God who's the source of the believer's grace and peace. Verse 4, it's God who's to be thanked for His grace. Verses 5, 6, and 7, it's God who enriched the Corinthians with all kinds of spiritual gifts. Verse 8, it's God who will confirm them to the end beyond reproach. And in verse 9, it's God who's faithful. So that it's God who is the Corinthians' hope. And may I say to you this morning, He is also our hope, our only hope, church. This church on this hill, I'll say it, has no hope of rebuilding apart from the faithfulness and the goodness and power of God. Oh, we need Him. I tell you, as I stand up here and as I look at at you and I look at what what needs to be done, what's waiting to be done. I'm telling God in my prayers, and I hope you're telling Him in yours, we need you. So having laid a God-centered foundation in verses 1 to 9 of chapter 1, Paul now begins to tackle the first of seven serious problems at Corinth. And this first problem is division in the church. Division in the church. And he addresses this problem from 
chapter 1, verse 10, all the way to chapter 4, verse 21. Now, that is a sizable chunk of the letter of 1 Corinthians, and it indicates how serious a problem the Corinthians' division is. And it's one that we've got to beware ourselves in our rebuild. Listen to Paul. Let's start now at verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 1. Now I exhort you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brothers, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, not in wisdom of word, so that the cross of Christ will not be made empty. My title this morning is simply No Divisions. No Divisions. The Corinthians are at each other's throats with petty bickering and silly disputing. It's ugly, it's immature, it's unkind. And above all, it's unchristian. And Paul says it must stop. The Corinthians must bring their division under the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ, under the sway of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you noticed the way Paul keeps appealing to Christ's lordship. In verse 2, he tells the Corinthians they are called as saints with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. In verse 3, he wishes them the blessings of grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 8, he anticipates the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 9, he speaks of fellowship, of common union with God's Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see that in your text? And now here he is in verse 10, exhorting the Corinthians by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's that mean? That Christ is Lord Well, it means that he is ruler, he is king, he is the sovereign. In Matthew 28, 18, he has all authority in heaven and on earth. In Jude 1, 4, he is our only master. 
and Lord. In Revelation 17, 14, he is the conquering lamb, Lord of lords and King of kings. May I ask you this morning, are you clear in your own heart and your own mind, if you're professing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, are you clear in your mind and heart what Christ's lordship means Because it would appear today that there are a lot of folks who are not clear about what it means to say that Jesus is your Lord. What does lordship mean? And I say this because of how indifferent, and I'll just say it, they are downright cavalier toward the word of God, toward the Lord's word. It's just like it really doesn't matter what the word says, I'm going to do whatever it is that I want to do. I told you about Lydia's little saying that she has. I think I said it last Sunday. She'll go, what the world? What the world? You call yourself a Christian, but you're going to do whatever it is that you want to do. What the world? She'll also say, no, no, no. No, no, no. And listen, brothers and sisters, what does it mean when we say that Jesus Christ is our Lord? Well, it means that he is ruler. We're saying he's the king. We're saying he's the sovereign, that he is eminent above all. And that means his word is the rule. His word is the final say. It is the first and the last word on everything it addresses. Remember that part of the Great Commission where Jesus says, teaching them to keep all I commanded you? Have we forgotten that? That we're to keep all that Jesus commanded? Why? Because He's Lord. His Lordship summons me to yield the entirety of my life to Him. Not my Sunday morning life. Not my religious life. But the entirety, the whole of who I am, I am to submit to His rule, His kingly rule. That's because He's the Lord. He's the king. He's sovereign. That's why Jesus says in Luke 6.46, Now why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do what I say. We make no apologies in this church for highly regarding what God says in Scripture. No apologies. I was walking through my neighborhood the other day and it was very windy down there in Chattanooga and there was a neighbor, she was blowing leaves. She had this big blower on her back. Uh, and she's out there blowing these leaves. So I came walking by and we stopped to talk for a moment. And she, she, you can see the frustration on her face because she's blowing it this direction and the wind is blowing it this direction. You know, she's just, and these leaves are just going all over the place. And I, and I, I thought to myself, you know, we're not going to be a church like leaves in this yard. That just gets blown all over the place. It depends on which way the, the cultural winds shift. And if they shift this direction, well, then we're going to go over here. If they shift back this direction, well, then we'll go over here. No, no. No, we're not going to do that. Because Jesus is Lord. And as His church, we are therefore subject to His Word. Reflecting His rule. Does that make sense? I don't know why, I don't know why some of these Folks call themselves Christians. I don't know why they, some of these organizations, these buildings call themselves Christian churches. 
when they're clearly not doing what Christ says in his own word. Uh, it's, it's a mockery, isn't it? This is Paul's framework now as he begins this 10th verse. He's talking about no division. And he's talking about it under this umbrella of the lordship of Jesus, which he has just hammered in these verses all the way up through verse 10. Now I exhort you, brothers, let's look at it. By the name of our Lord Jesus. Now I just want you to notice, though, he's, he's strong, he's tough, but there's a gentle touch here with Paul. He says, uh, not I command you, but he says, rather, I exhort you, I urge you, I appeal to you, I plead with you. That you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. The Greek word for divisions is schismata, from which we get our English word schism or schism. Now, let me just ask, time out real quick. How do you all say that word? Is it schism or schism? What do you say? How many say schism? How many say schism? Oh, wow. Okay. All right. All right. Well, we'll go with schism then. Schism. That is a division into mutually opposed parties. The word that he uses here signifies internal strife, but short of an organizational split. Their division is on the verge of tearing the church completely apart. It's not done it yet, but it's, it's headed that direction. No, brothers, Paul says, I exhort you, I plead with you, I urge you, I appeal to you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, no schismata, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. There it is again, uh, verse 11, for I have been a, I have been informed concerning you, my brothers, hear the soft touch, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now that's twice he's called them brothers. My family of God in the faith. This division that the Corinthians are experiencing is tearing Paul's heart out. Oh, it's so awful. When Christians and churches become divided, isn't it? And he's appealing to them as kindly and as earnestly as he can. And he's doing so because Chloe's people have brought him up to speed on how bad things are in Corinth. I asked my daughter Chloe if she was going to be able to be with us today to drive up from Chattanooga. She said, why? I said, well, because I'm going to preach on your verse. It's because your name. I've named her after this Chloe. And uh, I said, I, I would like for you to come and uh, stand in front of everybody and let us, uh, you know, look at you and uh, applaud for, for 19 seconds because you're 19 years old. And I don't think she made it today. So uh, anyhow, no, I'm just kidding. But th this, this Chloe's biblical identity here is unknown. It's obvious that she's well known to Paul. And to the Corinthian church, he only has to mention her name. And clearly he accepts her family's integrity because he regards what they tell him as fact. Notice, fact, not rumor. And by the way, he mentions names here, and she was willing to have her name mentioned because there's nothing to hide. This is just truth. And he's been told about the Corinthians' quarrels. The Greek word denotes more than simply a difference of opinion. It means bitter contentions, wranglings, 
loud, incendiary arguments. Gramacki says these contentions were not quiet and subtle. They had progressed to a shouting, hot temper stage. The believers were acting and talking like unsaved men, not like saints within the church of God. And that sadly happens, doesn't it? And Paul states what they're quarreling about now in verse 12. See how we're just walking through? Verse 12. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. So this is just devastating. Note the words, each of you. Did you see that in verse 12? The problem is church-wide. Across the church, they are treating one another as rivals. They've actually divided, Paul says, into four factions. Each one has its own agenda. Each one is marching beneath the banner of its own leader. And each one is disparaging the other. The first faction is lionizing Paul, the founder of the church at Corinth. The second is lionizing Apollos. Apollos was an Alexandrian Jew. He was an eloquent Christian preacher. He was a defender of the faith, an apologist. The third faction was lionizing Cephas, which is the Aramaic equivalent of the name Peter, leader of the original twelve And then not to be outdone, the fourth faction is touting themselves as above the fray and they are marching with the slogan, I am of Christ. But they're evidently not of Christ in a way that Paul can commend. And they may be boasting in themselves about following Jesus or they may be saying they're the only ones who are following Jesus. Regardless, the result in Corinth is this disastrous division just devastating the church. Well, now, how is Paul going to correct this? What's he going to do? Well, he puts three questions to them to which the Corinthians know the answers. See, a lot of times we know, don't we? We know the answers. He says in verse 13, Has Christ been divided? Has he been dismembered? So that one of you has his leg, one of you has his arm, one of you has his torso. It's it's a graphic picture. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? You see, their, their division has led them into absurdity. This is simple absurdity to profess Paul or Apollos or Cephas is for the Corinthians to forget that when they were baptized, they were baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. Listen, when you are baptized, you profess your allegiance to the king. Your baptism is doing. And Paul's saying to them, what are you doing? Verse 14 I thank God, he says, that I baptized none of you. And then he thinks, except Crispus, who was the ruler of the synagogue, you know, there in Corinth when Paul first came with the gospel. Crispus was converted, became a Christian. 
Paul baptized him. I baptized him and Gaius. Gaius was uh, Paul's host in Corinth and converted under Paul's ministry. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one would say that you were baptized in my name. And then he goes, verse 16, oh, yeah. Now, I did also baptize the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I, I do not know whether I baptized any other. According to 1615, Stephanas and his household were the first converted to Christ in the Roman province of Achaia. The capital of Achaia was Corinth. And that's all that Paul can recall about the baptisms because somebody said Paul didn't put notches in his Bible to keep a head count of those he had baptized. Now listen to the final verse, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel. Now I want to ask you something. There are churches today that say that baptism is an integral part of the gospel itself. That to be saved, you have to be baptized. I'm going to ask you this. Would Paul in a thousand years ever have uttered these words if baptism were part of the gospel and necessary for salvation? No, he wouldn't. He would never have said, I thank God I didn't baptize any of you except these. And then he would not say, verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel. Does that mean then that baptism isn't important? Oh, now don't go there. Baptism is important. It's very important. Why is it important? Because it's commanded by Christ, right? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus, Lord, remember, Master, King, Ruler, Sovereign, commands us to declare our faith in Him by baptism. You better believe that's important. And that's why the early church practiced it. If you want to look over at Acts chapter 8 real quickly, we're moving fast, Acts chapter 8 verse 12. You will see the early church. They're not discounting baptism. They're not saying, well, you know, what you need is faith in the Lord Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus, you'll be saved. Yes. Well, then, therefore, we don't need baptism. Forget baptism. That's not, no, that's not their reasoning at all. Because Jesus is the Lord, right? So we read at Acts 8, 12. But when they believed Philip, proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, what happened? They were being baptized. Both men and women. Go down to verse 35. Same chapter, Acts 8, 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he proclaimed the good news about Jesus. You see, it's always proclaiming the gospel. The person understands the gospel. And then they're baptized. It's always that way in the Bible. That's not always the way men practice it today, but it's the way it is in the Bible. Verse 36, and as they went along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And some of the ancient uh, 
Greek manuscripts have verse 37, and Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Verse 38, And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down. They went down into the water, because to baptize means to immerse or to submerge. They went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. There it is. Baptism is important. It's the act by which we publicly commit ourselves to the Lord and to his church. And thereby we are distinguished from the rebellious world around us. It says, I want nothing to do with Jesus. I'm not going to identify with him. I'm going to live my life my way. I'm going to do it my way. And I'll go out of this life doing it my way. No. No, when you become a follower of Jesus, Lord, what would you have me to do? You're the master. You're the ruler. You're the sovereign. You're the king. I'm your subject. I bow. Tell me your word. That's important, baptism, but it's important in its proper place. And what Paul is saying in verse 17 is that others could baptize for Paul because as Christ's apostle, his primary charge was what? To proclaim the gospel. You see that, verse 17? For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel. Now, why? Well, not in word and wisdom of word, he says. That means not, not in the, uh, the dazzling verbiage of a professional order where he's so amazing with words that you go, wow. No. He, he did not send me in wisdom of word so that the cross of Christ will not be made empty uh, due to the sophistication of the order. You know, he's so sophisticated. He speaks in a way as to draw attention to himself and not to the gospel. And Paul says no. Paul deliberately avoided ornate speech, flowery speech. He he said, I'm going to keep it simple. I'm going to keep it straightforward to make this clear that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Hallelujah. When I was a boy, we used to sing a hymn that said this. See if any of you recognize it. It said, sinners Jesus will receive. Sound this word of grace to all. All who the heavenly pathway leave, all who linger, all who fall. Sing it o'er and o'er again. Christ receiveth sinful men. Then the next line. Make the message Clear and plain, Christ receiveth sinful men. I love that. That's it, brothers and sisters. May we never do anything from this pulpit or this church that obscures the simple message that Christ receives sinful men and women. Because He's a Savior and He's Lord. Now, brothers and sisters, Mill Springs has been a church going on 200 years. Can you believe that? Will you let that sink in for a moment? It's 195 years right now to be exact. 
Anybody care to guess how much a gallon of gasoline was in 1828? Trick question. There was no such thing in 1828. It wasn't until 1892 with the invention of the automobile that gasoline was recognized as a valuable fuel. That's how old this church is. We predate gasoline. By more than six decades. So I ask you, Mill Springs, at age 195, haven't we had enough division? Enough to last another 195 years if the Lord tarries. We've had enough. No more, brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, will you pray against a divisive spirit? Pray against it. Strive for unity in the spirit. Let me just put it point blank. No sinfully divided church can accomplish what a scripturally united church can accomplish. The only thing that a a sinfully divided church can accomplish, stagnation, maybe stagnation, and ruination. That's it. Our master's words are true words. He said if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not stand. Be able to stand. Ask God to help your soul feel the power, the force of what Paul is telling this Corinthian church here in 1 Corinthians 1. It's in the Bible about them for us. Now I exhort you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your holy word by which our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ makes known His will. Help us, Father, to bow ourselves in complete humility and lowliness of mind before our King, our Sovereign, our Lord. We pray this as a church in Jesus' name.